Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone out to another Tuesday night Torah study entitled Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunava in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with prayer, and then I'll entertain some liturgy, and then we'll get started into the study for tonight, okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we bless your great name, and we say thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to come into our lives, to come into our hearts, to send the promise of the Spirit that we might be redeemed, that we might live lives that are holy unto you, that we might see your face and glorify you for all the great things that you have done. We thank you, Lord, that you are continuing to bless us as families, as a community, as um, students of the Word. We know that you are raising us up as we uh, still have pouring still fresh on our minds. You're raising us up for such a time as this, so that we can take the good news that we have to those who don't yet know. Lord, give us boldness. Give us an opportunity to share our faith with those around us, our friends, our family members, our co-workers. Lord, help us to uh, not be ashamed of who we are, but realize that if we don't share the good news with them, perhaps they may not have another opportunity to hear it. So, Father, as we study, as we uh, embark on another um, topical search into the book of Galatians and indeed into the rest of the scriptures, Lord, we take the principle from Ezra, we take our cue from him, where it is spoken of him that Ezra studied in order to do and then in order to teach. And so we study so that we might be pleasing to you as the psalmist said, we hide your words in our heart that we might not sin against you. Lord, we want to do your will. We want to walk in the footsteps of Messiah Yeshua. We want to be like the Master. We want to be Christ-like. And we want others to see Christ in us. And so for that reason, we avail ourselves of the words that you have left with us, that you have preserved for us. Thank you for each and every student who has uh, joined me tonight in the study. And I pray that you will enlarge their capacity to understand, to comprehend, um, be with them as they continue to press in closer in their personal walk and relationship with you. May they seek to be a blessing to others as they uh, seek to be blessed. Thank you, Lord, that you have uh, allowed me to teach, and I take this responsibility um, very seriously. 
I pray that you will um, continue to protect me, uh, help me to um, continue to grow as well, and to continue to practically apply the things that I'm learning as I'm studying right along with the students. Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the thanks and for all these things, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Well, it is Tuesday, April uh, 5th, 2016. My name is Ariel, as I mentioned earlier. This is a study entitled Exegeting Galatians. It's a live internet study, and I'm coming to you live from another part of the world. Uh, I'm not really in America, but I'm somewhere else far away. And I'm delighted to be able to come and join you each Tuesday night. Uh, we meet for an hour each week. You're certainly welcome to come out and join us if you're listening to this commentary after the fact. If you've um, accessed this written, I'm sorry, you've accessed this audio podcast via iTunes or you have um, visited one of my websites, graftedin.com or tatesaytorah.com, and you've clicked on the audio commentary. Uh, I'm so grateful that you have found me on the internet, and you're certainly welcome to join me every Tuesday evening for free. Uh, I don't charge anything for these teachings. It's simply my pleasure and my privilege to bring them to you. Um, we meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we meet for 10 weeks again. And so each semester is 10 weeks long. We are beginning a new semester. This is week 21. Uh, we had a l rather longer break this time. We were supposed to meet last week, but my trusty aged MacBook Pro, uh, as, as loyal as it has been for these last five years or so, it, my logic board, aka my motherboard, it went out on me, and fortunately, it was a, um, it was a part that Apple deemed that, uh, was a, a recall part. Uh, the video card went out, and so I couldn't see anything. So I took it into the Apple Store, and they repaired it for free. And so I just want to um, thank everyone who um, supported me with their prayers and with their giving, um, because uh, there are overhead expenses involved with keeping a website running and, and uh, uh, managing teachings and things like that. And so I appreciate everyone who prayed for me and those who gave. Uh, I know that um, the Lord has will bless you and that he's going to continue to... Um, um, reveal to you uh, uh, how to walk and how how to, to to use your resources. So I trust God's goodness in these things. So I wasn't really worried. I just had to uh, sit back and um, study a bit more in, in the time that I in the production time that I lost. So that being said, we're back on track now. So this is week twenty-one, and we're ready to, uh, as we say, get back on the horse and keep studying. Um, for those of you who are in the live class with me tonight, I've got the screen opened up to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to read a little bit of liturgy from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and then we're going to read a little bit of liturgy from the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures as well. And I'm choosing this particular passage, Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 through 25, because of its, its relevance to our study in the book of Galatians. And when we get to verse 25, you'll see why. So let me read the, um, read the passage here. I used to read out of NIV, I'm sorry, I used to read out of ESV, but what I've been doing lately is reading the um, the interlinear English that's showing up on the screen that's kind of a wooden word-for-word -word, uh, translation from the Hebrew. I'm going to read the Hebrew for you as well, but I wanted you to know which version I'm reading. It's no true version, so I'll just read a few words in English, and then I'll read the Hebrew corresponding, and then we'll go that way for the first five verses, okay? 
the English reads, When asks your son, you, in time to come, saying, Ki yishalcha vincha machar lemor, what mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments that the Lord our God has commanded? Ma ha'idot v'hakukim v'hamishpatim asher tziva Adonai Eloheinu et chem. And let's scroll down and keep going. Verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, Va'amarta levincha, Slaves we were to Pharaoh in Egypt. Abadim hayinu lefaro b'mitzrayim, and brought us out the Lord of uh, and brought us out the Lord of Egypt with a mighty hand. Vayotzienu Adonai mimitzrayim biyad chazaka. Verse twenty-two, and showed the Lord signs and wonders great and very. Vayitain Adonai otot umof umoftim gudolim v. Ra'im, and against Egypt, on Pharaoh, and on all his household, before our eyes, the Mitzrayim, yes, the Mitzrayim, the Pharaoh, uchol beito le'einenu. The next verse, verse twenty-three, and he brought from there to the end that from there he might bring us in. The of Otanu Chutzi Misham Lemaan Havi Otanu to give to us the land that he swore to our fathers. Latet Lanu et Haaretz Asher Nishba Laavotenu. Verse twenty-four, and commanded the Lord us to do all statutes these. Vayitzivenu Adonai Laasot et Kol Hachukim Haile. To fear the Lord our God for our good, to always, that he might preserve us alive this day as it is. Uh, let's see, to fear. La yire et Adonai Elohinu latov, lanu kol hayamim, la chayenu kayom hazeh. And the final verse, verse 25. And our righteousness, and this is why I'm reading this particular verse, and our righteousness, it shall be to, if we observe to observe all, notice that to, if we observe to observe, there's a kind of a doubling in the English, but not so in the Hebrew, so we're going to find out. But if we observe to observe all commands, these. But I'm sorry, lanu ki Nishmor la asot et kol hamitzvah hazot before the Lord our God lifne Adonai lochinu as He has commanded ka'asher tzivanu. Now, why did I read this verse? We know from popular um, Christian theology that um, most people believe that the Torah does not offer righteousness. And if we're talking about forensic righteousness, that is, the kind of righteousness that is um, counted as from a, on a salvific level, that is, saving righteousness, then it's true. The Torah does not function in that capacity. But Moshe explains to us here that there is a righteousness that the law does offer. And he, he goes on to mention this again in Romans chapter 10, verse 5, that Moses describes the righteousness of the law. 
And so the righteousness that we need to be made aware of in this passage in Deuteronomy 6.25, when he says, and it will be righteousness for us if we observe to do all these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The righteousness is a moral righteousness. It is a behavioral righteousness. It is what we call the right thing to do. It is a life of living the right way before God. And it's not a type of living that will be counted as forensic righteousness. It won't count towards salvation. It's not doing in order to be saved. However, it is doing because it, because it is what God commanded us to do. It is the right thing to do because it's right in God's eyes. And this is in contradistinction to the wrong things that the nations who do not know God, those individuals who, who are not in covenant with God, those who have no um, uh, spiritual understanding, their eyes are darkened, as we would say. These people ultimately do the wrong things, viz. they sin. And they do the wrong things because they do not have a revelation of what is the right thing to do, even though they really are without excuse, because God has revealed the right thing to do over and over again. We could say that in God's general benevolence, he has given mankind the ability to know right from wrong, and therefore it's um, man is without excuse when he does the wrong thing. Even our conscience uh, betrays us at times when we do the wrong thing. Paul elaborates these details in, in the first few chapters of Romans. So the point I'm trying to make in bringing up this particular verse in our liturgy is that in our discussion of the book of Galatians, <clears throat> and as we're working our way down through Paul, and we start trying to um, interpret what Paul means when he talks about the righteousness that is offered by God, uh, the righteousness that is in in distinction against or in difference to the works of the law. We must understand that, um, uh, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but that's okay, this is a primer, this is a teaser. Uh, Paul's mind, Paul's theology would have um, uh, allowed for the behavioral righteousness as well as the forensic righteousness or the positional righteousness, if I can use that phrase. Paul's, Paul's theology allows for both of those righteousness both of those uh, uh, aspects of righteousness to be in view, and yet in his carefully reasoned argument, the context is going to tell us which one he's focusing on in any given moment. So with that being said, let's jump over to the uh, New Testament liturgy, the apostolic scriptures, and I'm going to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through, I think, about 6. And I'll do the same thing I did with the Hebrew. I'll just read a little bit of English, and then I'll read the, the translation in the Greek. And this time, if you're looking at your screen here, we're starting over on the left side as, as um, compared to the Hebrew, which starts on the right side, correct? So, Galatians 5, verse 1 reads, In freedom us Christ has set free. Te Lutheria hemas Christos Lutherosen. Stand firm, therefore, and not again in a yoke of slavery entangle yourselves. Stekete un kai me palin. Zugo duleas in Verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you shall become circumcised, ide ego paulos, lego human hati in pertemnesta, Christ you, nothing will profit. Christos humas uden ophelese. Verse 3. I testify, moreover, again to every man, 
marturomai de palen panti anthropo, being circumcised, that a debtor he is, all the law to keep, peratem nomino, hati ophelates estin hollen ton namon poiesai. Verse 4. You're severed from Christ, whoever in law are being justified. Katergetata apocristu, hoitenes in namo, tikai uste. From grace you have fallen away. Descartas exapasate. Verse 5. We indeed, through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness, eagerly await. Hemes gar pnumati epistios elpida de caiosunes apectecometha. And the final verse, verse 6. And indeed, Christ Jesus, neither circumcision any has power, nor uncircumcision. En gar Christo Jesu ute pertome ti iscue ute acrobustia but only faith through love working. Allah pistis di agapes in ergumene. And that's the end of liturgy. Now, why did I put these two verses together? Okay, we'll look at them again. Remember, Deuteronomy 6.25 says, it will be our righteousness if we are careful to obey, to obey and do all these commandments that the Lord our God has commanded us this day, right? It will be our righteousness. And yet, in, um, in Galatians here, uh, let's see which verse did I want to highlight. Verse 4. You are severed from Christ, whoever in law are being justified. You who are being justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. Notice that Paul is saying that justification in the law is futile. It'll sever you from Christ if that is your theological position. And the word uh, justified there, dikaiuste, uh, is from this dikaio or dikai word group in the Greek, which is, um, it's a term that was often used in the courtroom. And so we could say it is a courtroom term. It's a legal term. And it refers to justification or sometimes it's translated as righteousness. So um, if we consider that Paul is saying that you're severed from Christ if you're seeking to be made righteous by the law uh, and that you're falling from grace, te scartas expasate, you've fallen away, expasate, then... Um, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that the righteousness that Moshe was describing in Deuteronomy 25 cannot be the righteousness that will sever you from Christ. Otherwise, Moshe is, is enjoining Israel to, to keep the commandments of God because it will result in righteousness, and yet Paul is warning anyone from trying to keep the law because it will sever you from Christ and any form of righteousness. You see my point? So we can't have a contradiction so bold as this in the Bible. The only way to reconcile the two verses is to understand that there are two levels to righteousness or two, two aspects of righteousness. Not really two kinds of righteousness. God is righteous and there's only one standard of righteousness. I like to describe it as two as one coin with two sides. The one side being the behavioral righteousness or let me describe it this way. The one side being 
forensic righteousness and the other side being behavioral righteousness. And the two work in tandem. They work together. And optimally speaking from God's perspective, the righteous man, that, that person who would be found righteous in God's sight, is the person who first appropriates positional slash forensic righteousness by placing his faith in Jesus and then begins to walk out the behavioral righteousness that is found uh, in the instructions of, of God's Word, in the instructions of the Bible. Does that make sense? And so that really is the best way to, to reconcile the two passages and put them back together. What that means is Paul has no problem with walking in Torah. That's the challenge to traditional Christian thinking. Paul is not going to warn Gentile Christians or even Jewish Christians away from keeping Torah because Paul knows that the Torah describes behavioral righteousness. That's why we read the passage in Deuteronomy. Okay, let's jump now into our study. Um, we left off three weeks ago on, if you've got the written notes, uh, I suppose I shouldn't even be making reference to the page numbers in the written notes because those change as well. But if you're with me in the class, we're at the bottom of page, I want to say that's page 24. And uh, we read this paragraph already, but in order to create a segue between um, uh, week 20 and this current week, I'm going to go back and read this last paragraph and then just keep going from there. Um, by way of larger context, those of you who are following along with my study uh, say maybe online or you're um, enrolled but you're not really attending the live classes. Um, we are in section three entitled Works of Law Part One, Proselyte Conversion, Understanding the Background. And we've been parked out in this section for, wow, probably six or seven weeks now. And it's easily one of the longest topical sections in my commentary. And the reason I made it this way, just as we get prepared to study it, the reason it, it is so long is because it forms the foundation to my hermeneutical um, understanding of the book of Galatians. And what I do is I take this phrase works of law or uh, works of the law, however your Bible translates it. The Greek is ergo namu. I take this phrase and I launch from uh, what I'm um, working from a newer perspective on Paul, uh, new perspective, newer perspective, renewed perspective, um, first century perspective, however you want to describe the perspective that that takes works of the law as Paul referring to um, basic merit theology or basic good works in general, although it could be applied that way from a um, broad perspective. And in that, in that way, I think Luther and Calvin after him um, did a very good job in taking Paul's book and contextually applying it practically for their day. Um, but if we want to understand Paul from his first century context, uh, we have to take Luther and Calvin and set them aside just for a, a brief moment and turn towards a probably a, a more contextual understanding based on history. And this means we're going to have to probably go back through the rabbinic writings, um, the older uh, Jewish writings, and see if we can discover what works of the law referred to. And that's kind of where I've been going in my study. And I have found in my um, personal research uh, that works of the law doesn't really work very well in Paul if we just label it wooden um, obedience to the commandments. Um, particularly because, as we're going to find out, 
there was an element about Judaism. There was a, there was a, a perspective of Paul's Judaism that um, helps us understand that Jews and only Jews in Paul's day um, believed that that Torah obedience was theirs by covenant right. They really felt that the Torah was given to them exclusively, and uh, the Torah became a national uh, symbol of Judaism. It became a a, a a social badge. It became a um, a prized possession to be wielded uh, over and against anyone who was not a part of Jewish Israel. And in this um, limited perspective of God, His covenants, and the Torah and its promises then what we end up with is works of law applying towards a very limited aspect of keeping the Torah, um, a, a, a policy in, in Judaism that basically, uh, it basically micromanaged Jewish identity, uh, legal Jewish identity, and it also micromanaged covenant maintenance. And what I mean by that is using this one coin, two sides principle again. Works of law kind of describes the policy in first century Israel that uh, defined Jewish identity for those who were born Jewish or proselyte conversion for those who weren't born Jewish. So Gentiles wishing to join Israel had to undergo uh, mandatory proselyte conversion and take on legal Jewish status first. That was the first uh, step in works of the law or the first step towards being counted as righteous. And uh, this week would, we would describe this as the first side of the coin. The second side is what we might call the, the general maintenance of your covenant membership that you gained either by being born Jewish or by converting to Jewish, to Jewish, Jewishness, Judaism, Jewishness. And so the second side of the coin of works of righteousness, remember it's one coin with two sides, the second side is that behavioral righteousness. It's that walking into Torah. It's that maintaining your covenant loyalty and faithfulness to God by keeping commandments, by keeping uh, keeping yourself away from idolatry, by keeping yourself from getting, by avoiding getting cut off, by being, being avoiding being excommunicated from the community of Israel because of uh, penchant lust for idolatry or something like that, or random, I'm sorry, or wanton disobedience, thumbing your nose at the covenants and generally uh, uh, disdaining God's words and God's ways. Essentially, that would prime you for a candidate to be cut off from Israel, which in essence, then you're not marked as righteous anymore. You're marked as wicked. And oh, that's a position you don't want to find yourself in. That's That's to be called a sinner. That's to take on the status of sinner instead of the status of righteous. So when we're reading through Paul, my recommendation is that you have to account for these two um, aspects of righteousness or these two levels of, of works of the law, these two, uh, um, uh, what should I say, these two uh, degrees or these two... Um, components is the word I was looking for earlier. The, these two components of works of the law, and in doing so, it'll it'll give you a better handle at at interpreting Paul closer to the way he was probably writing two thousand years ago. Again, this is not to say that Luther and Calvin got it wrong. I've said in the past that Luther and Calvin, um, uh, I've said in the past 
teachings that they've that they've largely misunderstood Paul. And I, I want to retract that. I, I think that's unfair to Luther and Calvin. I think they really, I, in fact, during this three-week break while I was without a computer for a few weeks, I went back and um, reread uh, some of Luther's commentaries on Galatians and things like that. And I, I got to give it to him. He, he knew Paul very well. Um, he simply didn't feel the need to uh, teach Paul um, the way I'm teaching Paul. And so... You know, for what it's worth, um, don't throw away your Luther. <laughs> don't throw, don't toss him out. Uh, he had to contextualize. He had to to adapt Paul's writings to his day, and so for that, I commend him. And he did a good work. He did a good job. Although, although I have to disagree with Luther's um, understanding of of the fulfillment of the law, particularly the ceremonial civil parts. <clears throat> And uh, the practical application for, for Christians. In other words, it's no secret that Luther doesn't think... It's no secret that Luther thinks that many parts of the law, two-thirds of the law, has been done away with. Uh, and I disagree with that. So, let's jump into my commentary. Um, bottom of page 24. We're going to pick up the reading. And I'll just read a little bit, and then I'll stop and see if we need to elaborate anymore. I've written the commentary in such a way that I really don't need to stop and elaborate as much as I've been doing. So I'm going to see if I can accelerate my uh, way through the written notes a little bit faster, just a little more efficiently, okay? Let's read. Tying our discussion on circumcision, read here's Jewish identity, with our discussion on works of the law, we can readily affirm that most Christians also know that by the first century, the Judaisms of Paul's day began to use the term circumcision as a stand-in term to designate Jewish identity. And you can reference Galatians 2, 7-9. through 9. Let me pause it for a moment and interject. Um, recall that in my estimation, the word circumcision, as it shows up in Paul's writings, functions in a variety of ways. And if we're not aware of these for different uh, varieties these different usages, we're going to get tripped up on the context. We're going to get tripped up on the meaning that Paul's trying to convey. So here's what I mean. Um, circumcision itself is the uh, physical act of cutting away the foreskin of the male sex member, right? We know that. That's just basic biology. And so when we're talking about circumcision, we could be referring to that. But there are a few other ways that Paul uses circumcision. He also uses circumcision as what we call a metonym meaning it's a stand-in word instead of using or what we might call a trade word, um, circumlocution. Instead of saying one word, word A, he says word B. Why he does this? Well, perhaps for stylistic reasons, perhaps because it's the socially acceptable way of speaking. We're not quite sure, but we do know that, for instance, in uh, Galatians chapter 1, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about Peter being sent to the circumcised and Paul being sent to the uncircumcised. How is Paul using these phrases, circumcised and uncircumcised? Well, he's using them as metonyms, meaning stand-in words. The word circumcised refers to the Jewish people and uncircumcised refers to those who are not Jewish, meaning the Gentiles. And that's how Paul's using it there. So what we can infer from context is that um, Paul often uses circumcision in this metonymous way. But there's another way that Paul um, might be using circumcision, and that is in referring to not just Jewish identity, but circumcision as the identity that a Gentile might um, 
take on. So not just when when Paul says I was sent to the that Peter was sent to the circumcised, Paul means that Peter was sent to the Jewish people. But Paul could also um, say, for instance, in, in Galatians chapter 5, I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of no effect. What is Paul saying when he says you become circumcised there? Well, he does mean the surgical act. He does mean the biological aspect of it. But he also is including Jewish identity there. He's putting the two together. And that's what I mean. So we either have um, a, the, the, the uh, surgical procedure, B, Jewish identity, or C, a combination of the two. And I think in, in Galatians 5, he's probably referring to both of them together when he says, I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is known of, will be of no effect for you. So in the liturgy where we read, uh, you're severed from Christ if you're using circumcision, if you're using what? Not only the physical, biological act, the physical uh, cutting away, as your righteousness, but also, and more importantly, your legal Jewish status, either the, the status you gained at birth, if you're born Jewish, or for those Gentile adults who were wishing to join Israel and take on the status of righteous, or so they were being told by the influencers, then circumcision in that verse is referring to legal Jewish status. Okay, so... That's what I mean by tying our discussion on circumcision red here is Jewish identity. That's what I mean in my commentary there. All right, let's keep reading. But many of you may not may not know that also by Paul's day, and this is I'm just going to explain it, the term circumcision had shifted from the simple physical simple physical act with its corresponding sign of the Abrahamic covenant as recorded in Genesis chapter 17 to a more broad sociological and religious term including a status of righteous before God based on simply being a Jewish member of the commonwealth of Israel. And that's why I explained it that way. Works of the law, this phrase, which obviously included covenantal circumcision that was uh, mentioned in, Abra in the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. Um, works of law then becomes part of the socio-religious fabric of those groups advocating the Jewish-only policies that regulated supposed covenant membership policies that Paul likely held to prior to his faith in Yeshua. You can read Galatians 5.11. And these are also policies that he eventually identifies as another gospel in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Okay, let's keep reading. Next page. Now we're on the top of page 25. Uh, at least as of this teaching, we're on the top of page 25. If I decide to go back and edit some more of this commentary, well, then the page numbers may shift. So, for now... Top of page 25 on the, uh, the uh, complete written version. That the Torah with its attendant works of the law, along with Jewish identity slash circumcision, had taken on socially religious functions in Paul's day, is attested to by Dr. Che in a short survey of recent Galatian studies, quoted here at length for us to examine. Che makes several references to James D. D. James D. G. Dunn's thoughts in the following lengthy quote. And let's read this quote from Dr. Che. Quote, Scholarly attention has also concentrated on a sociological approach to Paul's letters. Some scholars have focused on Paul's authority in relationship with the churches in Galatia. Most interpreters have agreed that one of the critical issues in Galatia is the social issue of how Gentiles enter the people of God. Thus, commentators have argued that Paul's gospel of justification by faith 
is to be understood in light of this socialism. That's a very important sentence there. Many scholars shed some light on the issue of Paul's attitude to the law in Judaism and the disputes between Paul and the agitators in Galatia by means of such a sociological approach. In particular, Dunn highlights the social function of the law, which he believes to be important for understanding the mindset which Paul is engaging in Galatians. He, Dunn argues, quote, unless this social, unless this social, we may even say national and racial dimensions of the issues confronting Paul is clearly grasps, it will be well nigh impossible to achieve an exegesis of Paul's treatment of the law, which pays proper respect to historical context, end quote. Uh, Dr. Che goes on to say, Dunn is distinctive in understanding the social function of the law that, quote, serves both to identify Israel as the people of the covenant and to mark them off as distinct from the other nations, end quote. In light of the social perspective on the law, Dunn understand the works, understands the works of law <clears throat> not as only maintaining Israel's covenant status, but also as protecting Israel's privileged status and restrictive prerogative. Quote. So that's Dr. Che, and let's just keep reading. I think I think most of what I've written is self-explanatory, so I shouldn't have to stop and explain most of it to you. Um, you're, by this point in time, those of you who have been following my commentary are aware that I lean heavily on Dunn's writings, along with Tim Haig's writings, along with Andy Wright's writings, along with E.P. Sanders' writings, uh, and folks who generally espouse to the newer perspective on Paul, the perspective that seeks to um, interpret Paul in a more uh, socially religious uh, historical context rather than reading him through, say, uh, Luther's and, and Calvin's perspective. And we've already talked about that before. Let's keep reading the commentary. Indeed, Dunn's own words, this is not Dr. Cheney or this is my own commentary, this is my writing. Indeed, Dunn's own words on his definition of works of law are telling. Commenting on Paul in Romans chapters 2 and 3, we read, now I'm going to uh, quote Dunn here, quote, Paul introduces the phrase somewhat oddly at the conclusion to the first main part of the exposition of Romans 3, 19-20. And by the way, we're going to exegete Romans 3. We've been we've been looking at Romans chapters 2 and 3 as part of our study in Galatians. So when we get to, say, the last about 10 minutes of the study, I'm going to park it and we'll go ahead and pull up Romans uh, 3 and we'll pick up where we left off, which was, oh, about verse 18, 19, somewhere around there, okay? And what I'm doing is I'm working down as a kind of a test case through um, just Romans 2 and 3 uh, to kind of put my understanding of works of the law to the test, since in Romans, the phrase works of the law shows up for the very first time in Romans. So Romans 3.20 uses this phrase works of the law, which is ergo namu, and it's identical to the phrase in Galatians, and that's why we're going to look at it a little later on in the study. So let's read uh, Dunn's quote. Paul introduces this phrase somewhat oddly in Romans 3.20. Again, I should have just looked at Dunn there, he tells me. Again, the implication must be that its meaning or reference was either well-known or self-evident, since the second half of the preceding discussion was a refutation of Jewish resumption in their favored status as the people of the law. The quote-unquote works of the law must be 
a shorthand way of referring to that in which the typical Jew placed its confidence, the law observance, which documented his membership of the covenant, his righteousness as a loyal member of the covenant. This is confirmed by the way in which the following paragraphs, works of the law, are associated with boasting. You can reference Romans 3.27, 28, and as well as Romans 4.2. Thus, explicitly recalling the earlier passage where Paul specifically attacked his own people's presumption as being the people of the law, uh, which would be Romans 2.17-20, as well as Romans 2.23, which we read in our exegesis of uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, also with uh, circumcision once again serving as the distinguishing mark of the Jew, according to Romans 2, 25 through 29, end quote. And uh, you can see the attending footnotes uh, to see where I pulled those quotes from Dr. Che, as well as from uh, James D.G. Dunn. Let's keep reading. We're on the top of page 26. This is my own writing now. What is more, with the term circumcision functioning as a metonym for Jewish I'm sorry, with, excuse me, with the term circumcision functioning as a metonym for Jewish, comma, with works of the law likely functioning as a term that envisioned both entry into the covenant via becoming Jewish through taking on circumcision for those outside seeking to get in, as well as the accommodation of the maintenance of membership within the covenant that works of the law provided, uh, in reference, say, you look up Galatians 3, 2 through 5, I, in my opinion, it's easy to gloss over the fact that the Torah as a whole, in Paul's day, was beginning more and more to take on a role that God never intended it to play, which was, what, what is it? It was that of a prized social status for those who possessed knowledge of the Torah, i.e. the Jewish people, right? And that's why it becomes important for us to, to gain this perspective as we're reading through Paul. In fact, before I keep reading, the practical implications or uh, the, ra the practical ramifications for us today is this. In standard Christian circles, the parts of the law that the Christians identify as either um, that we Christians, I say Christians, I'm, I'm a Christian as well. I don't mean to sound like it's us versus them, but prevailing Christianity, the parts that I differ with, hold to a, a view, a, a popular view that... Um, Either the law was done away with as a whole, or at least the ceremonial and civil parts were done away with, and we keep the moral parts. Uh, we, and so um, the parts that make you look Jewish, you know, Sabbath keeping, the dietary laws, uh, the holiness laws, the ritual laws, um, the festivals, uh, circumcision, things like that. Those are the parts that Christianity deems too Jewish to keep, as it were. And so um, basically, if we don't understand that the Judaisms of Paul's day felt that the Torah was their sole possession, that it was their unique uh, possession, and it served to um, function to not only bring them into the covenant uh, via the Jewish identity of, circum of circumcision, but Torah obedience helped to, um, what do we say, maintain their position in the covenant, at least in their, in, in, in their self-understanding it did. Um, if we don't if we don't consider that, then practically, uh, when we're talking about the, the the ramifications for today's say Torah communities, like today's Messianic Judaism, today's um, Messianic Jews and Gentiles, those people who are seeking to return to uh, a Torah-based lifestyle, then what ends up happening is Christi 
um, many well-meaning Christians misinterpret um, the motives behind keeping Torah from a 21st century perspective. You understand what I'm saying? We have basically Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. Both have been um, made righteous by Messiah's blood. And that, that is accurate. That's the way we properly understand Torah. That's the way we properly understand Paul's writings, is that it's faith in Jesus that brings us into a right relationship with God. But what we need to also understand is that our behavioral righteousness is defined by God's word. It's defined by uh, the Torah that God has given us, that God has handed down to us. And when I say us, I mean the, 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 the visible existing people of God. This would include Jewish people who follow after Torah even after they come to faith in Jesus. I'm such a person. I'm a Jewish man, and I keep Torah to the best of my ability by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of the flesh, of course. I try to keep Torah according to the Spirit. And in doing so, what I'm trying to do is demonstrate not only loyalty to the covenant, but I'm also showing, I'm demonstrating that God's words are forever settled in heaven, that God's words are um, relevant for me as a covenant member. And so when we're reading through Paul, we have to understand that the Jewish people who didn't yet espouse the faith in Jesus, they were kind of stuck on the, um, <clears throat> they were stuck on the temporal aspect of covenant membership. They, they knew they were, they were covenant members in Israel because they were born with covenant membership. But they didn't understand how to keep Torah only afforded them behavioral righteousness if they didn't graduate to faith in Jesus. Make sense? So let's keep reading. Indeed, Paul hints at Jewish boasting over being instructed from the law in Romans 2, verses 17 through 23. We read this a few weeks back. I'll read it again. It's in my commentary. Quote, uh, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. This is Paul speaking to Jewish people, right? Uh, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. End quote. That's ESV. Now, Notice that we've got Jewish people who, in the very first verse, it says they rely on the law and boast in God. But then as we keep reading down, Paul says that they boast in the law and dishonor God. Isn't that interesting? So we've got this boasting. We've got the Jewish identity. We've got boasting in the law, boasting in God. And uh, as I say in my commentary, let me scroll down a bit. We are now able to put three first-century social-religious aspects of Jewish communal life on the table for careful examination. What are they? We've got circumcision, which is read here as Jewish identity. We've got works of the law, which is read here as obedience to commandments that mark out Jewish covenant membership in Israel. And we've got the Torah itself as an ostensible, unique possession of the Jewish people. We've got all three issues here. right? We've got Jewish identity, we've got circumcision... I'm sorry, we've got Jewish, um, I'm sorry, we've got circumcision, we've got works of the law, and we've got the Torah 
as a whole. And we've got all three of these issues that are kind of showing up in this passage. On this third issue, on Torah itself, we will briefly turn to Tim Haig's vital work entitled, Is the Torah for Jews Only for Jews? Which I downloaded for free from a site a few years back on um, on uh, oh, right around this time, well, in 2003, in, in April of 2003. Haig, quoting the rabbinic literature, uh, he's going to quote Midrash Rabbah to Numbers and Midrash Rabbah to Exodus and the Sifra. Um, here's what we read in Haig. Let me scroll down a bit. All right. Haig writes, quote, In fact, it was the view of the Talmudic sages that the Torah was offered to every nation, but only Israel accepted it. For some of the rabbis, this acceptance of the Torah made Israel worthy of God's election. And then he quotes from one of those uh, sources there. Why did the Holy One, blessed be he, choose them? Why did he choose Israel? Because all the nations rejected the Torah and refused to accept it, but Israel gladly chose the Holy One, blessed be he, and his Torah. That's, uh, I believe, uh, Midrash Rabbah to Numbers. And then Haig goes on to say, The Torah, therefore, was the distinguishing mark from the rabbinic viewpoint that separated Israel from the nations. The Midrashim state this clearly. And then now we have two more quotes from uh, the Midrash series. We have, quote, If it were not for my Torah, which you accepted, this is God speaking in the Midrash, I should not recognize you, and I should not regard you more than any of the idolatrous nations of the world. And another quote from the Midrash, from the Midrashim, uh, quote, Yet if, I'm sorry, yet for all that, in spite of their sins, when they have been in the land of their enemies, I have not rejected them utterly. And that's a reference to uh, Leviticus. Uh, the, the, uh, Midrash, the Midrash quote goes on to say, All the godly gifts that were given them were taken from them. And if, uh, if it had not been for the book of the Torah, which was left to them, they would not have differed at all from the nations of the world. End quote. All right, so that's uh, Tim Haig's quote from his book, or uh, from his work, Is the Torah Only for Jews? Very, very um, valuable work. I'm not so sure that it's available on his website anymore. Uh, you, I think it got turned into a book itself called uh, Fellow Heirs or something like that. So at any rate, if you're interested in finding out more, just go to Tim Haig's website. Uh, you can see the, the uh, footnote at the bottom of of my page there. Uh, Tim Haig is a Torah for only for Jews, uh, taken from TorahResource.com. Okay. Um, let me read one more paragraph, and then I'll stop here and pick up uh, the brief um, uh, insight into Romans. So, uh, after reading Tim Haig's quote here, I, I write, in reference to how Paul describes Gentiles as those, quote, who do not have the law, in Romans 2, 12-14, Dunn also comments on the notion that ancient Israel likely held to a common Jewish belief that the Torah that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai became the sole possession and responsibility, not only of Israel, but more specifically and exclusively of Jewish Israel, and that this Torah marked her out as a distinctly separate people from the pagan nations surrounding her. And uh, here's the quote, from, uh, from uh, Dunn, quote, In other words, the law and the Jewish people are coterminous. The law identifies the Jew as Jew and constitutes the boundary which separates him from the Gentile. And let's see. 
I think I'll stop there in my commentary. We'll pick up the reading again next week, uh, starting with the paragraphs. So as I see it, we have historic Israel abusing, etc., etc. But for those of you who are in the live class right now, if you'll look at your screen, you'll see I've turned to Romans chapter 3 out of the ESV. And um, let's just scroll down to jump down to verse 19. And if you if you recall, remember, we, we already read verses 18, 1 through 18 in the past. We're basically jumping in the middle of context. But what I'm trying to get you to see is that Paul's having this discussion about, um, about Jews and Gentiles and their relationship, not only to the righteousness of God, but their relationship to the Torah. And so if we recall, like, say... In this chapter, verse 5, Paul says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. Or then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Uh, verse 8, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So uh, he just got through basically talking about um, basically everyone is a, everyone is unrighteous. That's why he says if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, Jews and Gentiles are in this boat together, born into sin, born in unrighteousness, and therefore there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can do to be counted as righteous before God. This would be shocking to the Jew. Because Paul is not really referring to behavior righteousness when he talks about our unrighteousness. He's talking about a forensic righteousness, a positional righteousness. He's talking about being found um, to be righteous in God's eyes on a salvific level, a righteousness that is eternal. And so in that aspect, he can then move into uh, verse 9 of this chapter, Romans chapter 3, uh, what then, are we Jews any better off? Right? He's going to now draw this, this comparison based on the social worldview that he lived on, <clears throat> lived in, based on the uh, Jewish self-identification that, that many Jews of his day um, exhibited. And what was that? Jews self-identified as righteous. And, and, and what I mean is this. Many Jewish people in Paul's day believed that they were forensically righteous, that is, they were saved. They believed that they were forensically righteous on the basis of their Jewish ethnicity. See my point? So Paul's going to say, are we Jews any better off? Meaning, are we better off uh, uh, forensically righteous? Are, do we have a righteousness that... In other words, if I were to paraphrase the first part of verse 9, I would say, that, say this way. Are we Jews really forensically righteous just because we're Jews? And Paul says, no, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In other words... The righteousness, which is one coin with two sides, it's not, it's not that it's um, forensic righteousness versus behavioral, rather it's both. In Paul, it's both, right? It's a it's faith plus faithfulness, right? It's it's trust plus obey. It's justification plus sanctification, right? So all of these themes, it's one coin with two sides. We have to remember that both sides are in view. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, continuing, in, in as we're looking now, uh, Paul's going to introduce, are we Jews any better off? Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. 
No, not at all. We've already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, in the Greek. And then we can jump down now um, to verse 19, which uh, if you're in the if you look at the screen, you'll see I've got pulled up. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. Um, whatever the law says, and the word law there we know is the Greek word namos. Um, we know then that that Paul is introducing uh, not only this idea of how the law identifies sin for the Jew, but that the law identifies um, sin for the Gentile as well, even though Gentiles don't have the law in their social possession. In Paul's day, Gentiles naturally would not have been exposed to the Torah because of their being born in a non-Jewish culture. How, but that doesn't stop Paul from saying we know that the law, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. This phrase, under the law, is not a regular phrase of, of uh, huponaman, huponaman or such, something like that, under the law, like he might use in, in other passages. And Instead, it's better to understand this phrase as um, we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are within the law. Uh, the Greek says, um, verse 19, uh, we know, moreover, that oidemen de hati hosa, whatever the law says, honamas lege, to those under the law, twice in tonamo. I'm sorry, lege twice in tonamo. So this phrase, to those under the law, twice in tonamo, uh, under the law here means kind of within the law. Those, the preposition n in the Greek, refers to those who have the law within their possession. And so it's not necessarily those who are under its um, penalties, like the phrase under the law sometimes means in Paul. It's, it, instead, it means those who are within its jurisdiction. So we could say it this way. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are within the jurisdiction of the law. This would naturally mean Jews. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So in one sense, in a, in a limited perspective, Paul agrees that Jewish people did uniquely have the law. Remember, he just talked about that in uh, Romans 2, where he says, if you call yourself a Jew and you boast in God and you boast in, in your being instructed from the law. And now he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were uh, uh, twice in to namo, those who are under the law. And we mean those who are within the boundaries of the jurisdiction of the law, which would primarily mean Jewish people. Um even though he says the whole world may be uh, uh, the whole world may be stopped, the cosmos in the Greek, um, the whole world might be in, entered under judgment, and so in a broader sense, we know that the righteousness that is that is found in the words of God really do apply to the Gentiles, um, even if they specifically don't know it. The words of God have a general um, application to anyone. Jew or Gentile, although more specific and detailed revelation has been given to Israel uh, as a people group, but yet not to the exclusion of the Gentiles. Rather, the Jewish people, or uh, Israel, was given the law so that they could share it with the surrounding nations, the nations, the people groups. And we know that from reading the Torah. But Paul is simply trying to let us know that, as he's working towards this phrase, works of the law, Paul's trying to simply let us know that Righteousness is a standard that the the law of God, the Torah of God, has already um, 
already demonstrated, has already sh uh, showcased, it has already been um, revealed, not only to Israel, but now through uh, the, 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 the apostles and the prophets and uh, the, the disciples and uh, those uh, believers who keep uh, God's word faithful. The, the, we know that the Torah is going to be con uh, continue to be um, revealing the righteousness, the right standard of God. So it is within the context of of law here that we have now Paul saying in verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So in order to have verse 20 be universal when it comes to um, uh, works of law, no human being. And let me read verse 20 in the Greek, even though I don't have it pulled up on the screen. Um, kind of woodenly, we would read, uh, Therefore, by works of law, theati ex ergonamu, not will be justified, any flesh, before him, enopion, altu, through indeed law is knowledge of sin, diagar namu epignosis hamartius. So we've got our phrase now here, ergonamu, works of law, works of law. And Paul says that by works of law, no one will be justified. And in the ESV, it says no human being. The Greek literally says uh, pasasarx, which means no flesh. Sarx refers to flesh. We could say, in other words, it doesn't say any, um, it doesn't say anthropos, it doesn't say man. But what we're referring to is that, um, or what we, what we now understand is that Paul is letting us know that uh, by works of the law, by, by, by a standard of either Jewish identity for those who were born Jewish, or by becoming proselytes for Gentiles who weren't born with Judaism, born with Jewish identity, by this particular um, policy, nobody is going to make it. Nobody's going to be forensically justified in God's sight. We could fill in the word forensic in front of the word justified there, uh, the dikaiothesitai uh, will be justified. We could fill in forensically, primarily, because that's Paul's that's what Paul's trying to get us to understand is that forensic righteousness is the beginning of a genuine relationship with God, not to the exclusion of behavioral righteousness, not to the exclusion of practical righteousness, um, but we, we, we have to see them both working together. So for by works of law. And again, I'm taking works of law here to be one coin with two sides. A coin that on one side referred to Jewish identity and the other side referred to maintenance of covenant membership by doing what the Torah tells us to do. And again, unless you realize that in Paul, he's trying to uproot this bad theology that by being Jewish, you're made forensically righteous. And by keeping the Torah, you maintain your forensic righteousness. In other words, to use 21st century lingo, church lingo, we would say it like this. No one is saved by being Jewish, and no one stays saved by keeping the law, by keeping the Torah. That's what basically, that those would be the two sides of the works of the law coin. 
And so I, I believe Paul's combating that theology. And the only way we could understand that is from the context, the greater context of the passage as a whole. Otherwise, basically out of the blue, Paul mentions works of the law, ergo nomu. This is the first time it shows up in Romans. And we know that Romans was written about five years after Galatians. And so, or, or about, I'm sorry, about maybe two to three years after Galatians. And so Paul uses uh, works of law, works of the law, ergo nomu, uh, about six or so times in Galatians. And yet suddenly in Romans he uses it, and if without getting con- giving context, if he just suddenly out of the blue uses it, well then how do we know what it means, is my point. How would his readers have known, right? How would the, how would the believers in Rome have known what Paul meant when he says, uh, ex Therefore by works of the law, no one will be justified. How would they understand those words? How would they understand ex ergonomu, by the works of law, or out of the works of law, if Paul didn't give any context in his letter? Which means he must have been working from an existing knowledgeable term. In other words, the people knew, uh, the people then knew. And, and we can't assume that works of law simply means keeping the Torah, uh, because we've already talked about the ramifications of the, uh, how problematic it is to work from that particular um, interpretation of works of the law. It's probably better to understand it here in light of the social religious perspective uh, that um, that first century Israel wielded Torah in a very limited, restricted, nationalistic sense. An ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism is how I described it. How I describe it in my own commentaries. So basically, that's. Uh, that's how I'm going to interpret this passage. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Paul is saying, for by Jewish identity, uh, Jewish identity, Jewish membership into Israel. And I keep stressing the Jewish part of it because from a first century Jewish self-understanding, even though we know it is wrong, nevertheless, this is how they, they self-described. This is how they self-identified. Again, we know it's wrong, now we know it's incorrect. We know it's we know it's bad theology, but it didn't stop them from teaching it because that's the way they believed, right? But from a first century nationalistic perspective, Israel, the community of Israel, the people group of Israel was essentially a Jewish only uh identity. It was a Jewish only ethnicity, it was a Jewish only community. And everyone in Israel was a legally recognized Jew. And how did you get in? You were either born with your Jewishness, or you married into Jewishness, or a Jewish um, a person bought you as, a, as maybe a slave and uh, conferred Jewish status on you. Or uh, if you were maybe a, a Gentile woman, you could marry into Jewishness, um, or you could uh, convert. So the two primary ways to become a Jew or to be counted as a Jew in Paul's day. The two primary ones that I focus on uh, in my writings are the, the uh, what I call the natural and the achieved. And the natural is those Jews who are Jews by birth, like Paul, like Peter, like Jesus, or those who achieved their Jewishness by proselyte conversion. Luke may have been a proselyte. And, and if Luke wasn't, we certainly know that proselytes were mentioned in the book of Acts by Luke himself. 
So those are the two primary ways of getting into Israel, according to their own limited perspective. Now, what would Paul say about all that? Well, I don't think Paul had a problem with, well, I know for a fact Paul didn't have a problem with Jews being born Jewish and staying Jewish, right? He already tells us that in Corinthians where he says, if you're, if you're circumcised, don't seek to undo your circumcision. Meaning, if you're born a Jew, stay a Jew. But Paul's going to have some problems with conversion for the, for the ostensible sake, I'm sorry, for the sake of ostensibly conferring genuine covenant status upon the person. That's where Paul's going to have some disagreement. And that's where I think we're going to get the most mileage out of understanding uh, Galatians from the uh, social, religious, historical perspective uh, in the context of the way Paul wrote it. That's not to say, again, that your average 21st century pastor can't take the book of Galatians, and as long as the people, as long as his, his um, uh, congregants aren't entertaining notions of converting to Jewishness for the sake of becoming um, genuine covenant members, as long as they're not confusing their, their place in God with Jewish identity or some other nonsense, as long as they're not getting that that identity all mixed up, right? As long as they don't have a case of mistaken identity, then there's really no need for the pastor to have a lengthy uh, exposition on the book of Galatians the way I'm doing now. There's really no need for him, unless just to give them the background. But as far as practical application, I can I can now better appreciate how Luther and Calvin did what they did because perhaps the the Gentiles who were receiving their teachings receiving Luther's and Calvin's teachings, weren't hung up on the Jewish identity issue like Paul's readers were hung up on it. Does that make sense? Are you guys following along with me? That's going to be a better way for us to kind of interact with Paul as we're going through my commentaries and as you go through uh, other commentaries to the book of Galatians. Just keep that in mind. Paul's immediate audience very likely had a problem with Jewish identity. And when I say by uh, his immediate audience, I mean both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews of Paul's day were misunderstanding and misusing their Jewish identity, and the Gentile Christians or Gentile uh, uh, initiates, um, the those who were attending the synagogues, may or may not have been believers at the time, but nevertheless, the Gentile uh, listeners to his letter were also very likely being um, trying to bear they're either being persuaded to take on legal Jewish status or they were being forced uh, to take on Jewish status. You know, we talk about that how um, they were being coerced, they're being pressured from a social perspective. You know, uh, so that that's that's a better way to interact with 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 Galatians and understand it from a historical view. So with that, I think I'll stop uh, the commentary here. And I'll close in prayer. But then, for those of you who are with me in the live class, I'll uh, open up the chat room. And we've got another, oh, about 15 or 20 minutes or so left in the WizIQ uh, chat room. And we'll just sit and chat for a little bit, okay? Um, let's close in prayer. And uh, I'll allow those who uh, need to leave to go, okay? Let's pray. Abba, I bless your name. And I thank you for the opportunity to sit and to study with the students, to learn and to um, just to to be encouraged by the words 
of Torah, to be uplifted and to be enriched by the promises that you've given for us. For we know that all of your words are yes and amen in Messiah. We know that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We know that your words are are relevant for us as covenant members, as those who have been made righteous by the blood of Yeshua. Father, we, we want to put your words in our heart. We want to put your words in our mind. And so we study, we study, we, we press in, not just for study's sake, not just because, um, not just for academia, but Lord, we study in order to be pleasing to you. We study in order to turn away from sin. We study in order to be a blessing so that we can bless others. We study in order to grow ourselves up. We study in order to, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your words. Be with us this week as we uh, seek to be blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. Be with us as we seek to share the words with others. Be with us this week as we seek to be a witness to those around us. Lord, give us the opportunity to be a witness. Help us to demonstrate what it means to be a genuine child of God. Help us to, to turn away from sin. Help us to uh, press in to the holiness that is available only through the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, for healing us. You are our healer. We thank you for raising us up for such a time as this. We thank you for the past festival of Purim just a week or so ago, two or so weeks ago. And we thank you for the festival that is right around the corner, Pesach, the season of our deliverance. Press us ever closer towards you and continue to grow us up in Jesus. And we'll be careful to thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.